Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. I'm Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Constitutional Studies Program, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to uh, tonight's event, uh, also to welcome those watching uh, online. Um, I'm, I'm very interested uh, in tonight's event, um, uh, the topical nature, and to hear what my colleagues and Professor Burns uh, have to say. Um, I want to thank Soren Hansen, uh, who's been helping me with the program this year for arranging everything. Uh, Professor Burns for doing double duty. She gave a lecture this afternoon. It's quite a lot to ask of her after traveling all day yesterday. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, as you know, we have a tradition of uh, having one of our students introduce our speakers. So I'm going to uh, call to the microphone John uh, Henry uh, Hobgood. Um, now, I just picked up John Henry's thesis. So we could just read this instead. <laughs> Francis Bacon and Reason of State, a politics informed by natural philosophy. Oh, very good. Yeah. Uh, John Henry is, as you could probably tell, a PLS major uh, and has been a Tocqueville fellow since his freshman year, I think. Okay. John Henry? Like Professor Munoz said, I'm John Henry Hobgood, and it is my pleasure to introduce this evening's speakers. Sarah Burns is Associate Professor of Political Science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. She is a scholar of American foreign policy and the presidency. And her most recent book is titled, The Politics of War Powers, The Theory and History of Presidential Unilateralism, published by University of Kansas Press, which she presented earlier today. Jeffrey Lehman is Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. He is a scholar of American politics, political parties, public opinion, voting behavior, and religion and politics. He is the author of The Great Divide, Religions and Cultural Conflict in American Party Politics, published by Columbia University Press. Anibal Perez-Lignan is Professor of Political Science and Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. He's a scholar of the processes of democratization, political instability, and the rule of law in democracies. His book, Presidential Impeachment and the New Political Instability in Latin America, examines the emerging use of presidential impeachment as a political weapon. These three scholars will be speaking tonight on the topic of the Trump impeachment. Please join me in welcoming our panel. Thank you. Thank you for having me twice, I guess. Um, let's see if this is working. All right. Um, so I'll, I'll say when I, I wrote this, I um, actually completed the, my, what I was going to say before the trial had finished. And so I'll, I'll tell you what I originally wrote so you can see how it didn't quite work out. I originally said, I'm especially grateful that you've, you're having me here after the completion of the trial in the Senate. Trump was acquitted without any exciting turn of events that we have come to expect from this presidency. There was no surprise testimony, there was no smoking gun, and there were no bold defections from either party. So two out of three predictions isn't bad, but I'll start with the significance of Mitt Romney's defection and move from there. As a matter of historical importance, this is the first time that anyone from the president's party has voted to remove that president. Given the hyper-partisanship we have seen from both parties, that in and of itself is significant. I say this because we've seen an enormous backlash against Romney. He obviously knew he was going to be persona non grata at the Republican table in the cafeteria, but it's much worse than that. So besides that, the hashtag recall Romney trended on Twitter. Since there's no actual mechanism for recalling senators, legislators in Utah openly discussed creating one 
or at least censuring Romney for his vote. Matt Gaetz called for, wanted to expel Romney from the Republican Party, and people questioned his faith. Many compared him to Judas, and there are lots of claims that he, the Republican nominee for president in 2012, is a closet Democrat. Furthermore, he's been witness to others who have attempted to stand up to Donald Trump in the name of the Constitution. Jeff Flake, who is a rock-ribbed Republican, tried it and he was drummed out of office. Justin Amash tried it and he was made to leave the party. John Bolton, who was, for all intents and purposes, a well-respected Republican, has become, seemingly overnight, a traitor to the cause. Others, like Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham, started with critiques, but ended up bending a knee, and now they are staunch supporters. So Romney knew there would be costs, and meaningful costs, and yet he stood there, performing that very highest act of civic virtue for a politician. He went against his own self-interest to defend the constitutional system. Now, this was a speech he gave at the end of what can be considered a very nasty political fight. In fact, it was so nasty that Chief Justice Roberts felt compelled to chastise both the House managers and the president's defense team for speaking to each other in an uncivil manner. Now, besides being an eloquent speech that boldly defends the Constitution, which is thrilling for us, he beautifully lays out the case for and against impeachment. That, that action is helpful for us and for history because, unlike other impeachments, this case isn't quite so straightforward. In all the other cases, we knew exactly what the president did wrong. With Andrew Johnson, he had violated the Tenure of Office Act when he fired his Secretary of, State, uh, Secretary of War. Uh, Nixon was caught on tape attempting to cover up a crime. Clinton committed perjury. But this was not the case for Trump. He didn't commit a statutory crime, nor do we have clear evidence that he committed an offense that is on the level of a high crime or mystery demeanor. For that reason, supporters could fall into roughly three camps. Trump did nothing wrong, Trump did something wrong but it's unimpeachable, or look over there as they run away and answer, or answer a different question. So, um, this is all except for the spirit animal of American constitutionalism, Mitt Romney. So as he says, the historic meaning of the words high crimes and misdemeanors, the writings of the founders and my own reasoned judgment convince me that the president can indeed commit acts against the public trust that are so egregious that while they're not statutory crimes, they would demand removal from office. To maintain that the lack of a codified and comprehensive list of all the outrageous acts that a president might conceivably commit renders Congress powerless to remove such a president defies reason. And that it does. On my own reasoned judgment, I think it's safe to say that we can place Trump's action in the unseemly category at best to the impeachable at worst. From what we know, it's clear that starting in the summer of 2019, US policy towards Ukraine started to diverge into two tracks. There was the official track where career diplomats and political appointees tried to promote democracy, the rule of law, help fight corruption, and protect Ukraine from Russia. Then there was the unofficial track where a variety of people, many of whom did not have an official role in the US government, tried to convince President Zelensky to publicly commit to opening an investigation about Ukrainian intervention in the 2016 election and Joe Biden's actions in Ukraine as vice president. Now, you can dispute this characterization, but I'll say that Trump has always liked to be in charge and liked to look like he's in charge. I say that because around 20 people or so understood that he wanted this unofficial channel to carry out what Fiona Hill called a domestic political errand. Now, based on Occam's razor, it's much more likely that these people carried out the task they thought Trump had given them. It's extremely unlikely, conversely, that they acted without presidential direction or against presidential direction. What's even more interesting about this two-track system is that Trump claims, and try and follow with me, 
Trump claims that Biden's actions in Ukraine circumvented the normal diplomatic process in a corrupt way. Okay. Since we need to know if the Bidens are corrupt, we need an investigation. In order to achieve this seemingly legitimate goal, Trump can then paradoxically say that he had to go around the normal diplomatic process in order to initiate the investigation. So because of the complexity of the situation, it's perfectly understandable that the public then loses the ability to really grasp what's happening and who we should investigate. That confusion combined with partisanship gave us four months of a process where we basically knew what would happen. Trump would try and thwart the investigation. Democrats would use the rhetoric of constitutionalism to go after someone they've always wanted to remove from office. And we wouldn't really know what happened. And the country basically made its mind up in September. It was therefore, in, a, in some sense, a mundane process. But as I mentioned, there's still this historic aspect, and that's very important. So we could say that due to, the knowledge of our, due to the knowledge of the outcome, what was really on trial was the American political system. What we have seen is that our leaders are driven by partisanship much more than they are by their constitutional duties. Furthermore, congressional oversight of the executive branch will only really occur when the legislature is partially or entirely controlled by the other party. And I'll say in a transpartisan fashion, it is an open question whether this was a genuine effort to determine if Trump had abused power or a partisan attack on a controversial president. This is, however, a historic moment, and I'd like to end by highlighting another individual who rose to the occasion and reminded us of the core principles that keep the constitutional system from completely breaking down, something that has happened fairly regularly in a lot of other countries. So Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman started his testimony by telling his father that he did not have to worry, that he will be fine for telling the truth. He went on to say that in Russia, my act of expressing concern to the chain of command would have severe personal and professional repercussions, and offering public testimony involving the president would surely cost me my life. While Vindman has received threats, and he has been asked unceremoniously to leave the White House, he remains a decorated war veteran in good standing. And as long as the worst thing that has happened to him is his removal from his position in the White House, the Republic as we know it still stands, and we, like his father, need not worry, or need not worry too much. Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for coming. Um, a lot of times when people talk about impeachment and um, what is an impeachable offense, we, we hear from great uh, constitutional minds like Alexander Hamilton, uh, maybe Madison, maybe um, you know, Locke or Rousseau, some, Montesquieu, some of the people who influenced them. But I want to turn to the great contemporary political philosopher Gerald R. Ford. Uh, on what is an impeachable offense. And I really have no idea why in 1970 Ford was speaking on this to the floor of the House. <laughs> uh, but he says, the only honest answer is that an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers it to be at a given moment in history. Conviction results from whatever offense or offenses two-thirds of the other body considers to be sufficiently serious to require removal of the accused from office. So the most utilitarian answer possible, but what he basically means is it's all about party. Whether or not a president is impeached and whether or not a president 
is convicted of impeachment, impeachable uh, impeachment charges in the Senate is entirely due to the composition, the partisan composition of the House and the Senate. Um, we have had, of course, three presidents who were impeached, and in every instance, an overwhelming majority of the president's party uh, opposed impeachment, and an overwhelming majority of the other party supported impeachment. The fourth impeachment episode uh, we have had, of course, was Richard Nixon, who resigned from office before he was uh, able to be impeached. And even that episode was more partisan than we think. So let me show you just a little evidence um, on that. This is way too small. Um, and I'm not going to take you through all these numbers. But essentially, these are the impeachment votes um, in the House and the conviction votes in the Senate for all three instances in which a president was actually impeached. Um, in the case of poor Andrew Johnson, the House passed no fewer than 11 articles of impeachment against Johnson. Uh, and I wasn't going to put all 11 of those on the slide. Um, but luckily, before they got into the 11 articles of impeachment, they had an impeachment resolution to begin the impeachment proceedings. So we can see that. Um, and I'm, the reason there's no need to go into each of these individual votes on various articles is they're more or less all the same, which is an intense level of party polarization. An overwhelming majority of the out party voting for these articles or voting to convict uh, on the basis of these articles, uh, and an overwhelming majority of the president's party voting against the articles. Uh, and as Professor Burns just told us, up until Mitt Romney, never a case um, of a senator voting for conviction um, of a president of his or her party. So they've always been highly partisan. The Trump impeachment is more polarized along party lines than the Clinton or Johnson impeachment, but it really doesn't look that different. We think of this era as an era of, uh, that is uniquely polarized. We're more polarized than we have been at any time in history, we're told. Um, that's probably not true. We did fight a civil war. Um, uh, but impeachment, presidential impeachment, has always been a highly partisan process. Uh, even in the case of Richard Nixon, um, I think especially during the Trump impeachment where we have another Republican president um, who many believe has committed high crimes and misdemeanors, there's been sort of this historical mythology that the Republican Party in the early 70s was this band of patriots who all crossed party lines to support the impeachment and conviction of Richard Nixon. That is not true. Some Republicans did, far more than in the case of uh, Trump or in the cases of Clinton and Andrew Johnson crossing party lines. But still, a substantial majority of Republicans supported Nixon and imposed, opposed impeachment. Uh, we never had a House vote on impeachment, but we did have a House Judiciary Committee vote on articles of impeachment. And you can see, um, decent number of Republicans cross over, but still a strong majority of Republicans vote against impeaching Nixon. And this is the very end of the process. Up until this point, uh, there had been far less Republican support for impeachment. Um, so. 
Impeachment in Congress is always a highly, intensely partisan thing. The same is true of public opinion. The public's reaction to impeachment uh, is and always has been quite partisan, um, but it's grown much more partisan over the three episodes we've had since public opinion polling began. We have no polls on how the public felt about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Um, nobody liked Andrew Johnson, so I assume they were for it. But um, uh, this is the Nixon impeachment. Um, this is uh, support for impeachment and conviction of Nixon of Republicans, independents, and Democrats. You can see it's polarized along party lines. Uh, Democrats are the blue line. Um, they are always more supportive of impeachment and conviction than Republicans. Republicans never reach anywhere close to a majority, but the level of party polarization is less than we see for the subsequent two episodes. And it's what's particularly different about the Nixon impeachment is that public opinion is actually moving in the same direction. Republicans, Democrats, and independents are all moving toward greater support for Nixon's impeachment. Um, when we move up to the late 1990s, when Bill Clinton is impeached, we see more party polarization. I couldn't find independents for some reason, but Republicans and Democrats more polarized. Um, not terribly polarized. We don't have an overwhelming majority of Republicans supporting uh, the impeachment of Clinton, but it's always a decent majority. Um, and also we see no movement, no movement at all in one direction or the other. Um, Republicans always are uh, majority supporting uh, the impeachment of Clinton. Democrats are always very strongly opposed. Um, then we move to today. Um, we have much more polling, we have more sophisticated uh, graphs, I guess. Uh, and what we see now is almost total polarization, um, almost unanimous support for impeachment and removal by uh, ordinary Democrats, almost unanimous opposition among ordinary Republicans with independents somewhere in the middle. But the really remarkable thing is that from the beginning of October when impeachment starts up until today, these lines are flat as a pancake. There is absolutely no movement. All the new information, all the news coverage, all the hearings, the trial, none of it mattered. Um, and so public opinion is not only polarized, it's static, no movement at all. Um, what's the difference between Nixon's impeachment, where there was less polarization in the public, um, and Trump's impeachment and movement in the same direction among Republicans and Democrats and Trump's impeachment? Well, a lot is different, but with the Nixon impeachment, there was some bipartisanship in Congress. Um, there were Republicans who supported impeachment. And also, we got our information and our news all from the same sources. There was no internet, there were no 24-7 cable news networks, there wasn't conservative or liberal talk radio. Everybody got their information from the network nightly news or from newspaper stories that were probably generated by the New York Times or the Washington Post. Um, now, of course, we have partisan and ideological news networks, we have liberal and conservative talk radio, we have the internet, 
we confine ourselves to these social media um, universes where we block out all information that doesn't reinforce our predispositions. Um, and so people live in alternative realities. If you turn on Fox News and MSNBC, you get a very different picture of impeachment. Um, the last thing uh, Philip asked me to talk about, and I'll, I'll just say a word on it, is what does this mean for the election? Happy to say more in the Q&A. I think for the presidential election, it's a total wash um, for two reasons. One is we're still nine months away from the election. Um, lots can happen, and there'll probably be a thousand more Trump outrages between now uh, and November. But secondly, I think it really fires up both parties' bases. No doubt it fires up the Republican base. Um, Trump is able to, to um, tweak their anger. Um, but it also fires up the Democratic base. If the Democrats had not pursued impeachment, that would have depressed and demobilized the Democratic base. Um, independents are sort of somewhere in between. Um, I think the bigger impact may be on some congressional races in swing districts or swing states. A lot of the Democrats elected in 2018 come from red or purple districts. Their support for impeachment could be a problem. Um, and Republicans from moderate districts or moderate states, Susan Collins, for example, who opposed impeachment and defended Trump, um, they may have a problem. I think that's where we're more likely to see an impact is in the congressional elections. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I am here to tell you essentially that you are not alone. Um, if, if, um, if, if you've been following the impeachment process and you supported President Trump, you probably feel that this was a, a ill-conceived uh, coup, coup attempt um, that, that fortunately did not work. If you, if you are critical of President Trump, you probably feel that the president got away with um, misbehavior that should have been an impeachable offense. Um, and this, uh, what, I, what I would like to emphasize um, is that this, this feeling of frustration that the impeachment process creates is um, it's intrinsic to the institution itself. Impeachment is, a, is an institution that creates this, this type of feeling, this type of frustration, in part because of, of its very own design. It's hard to perceive this if we, um, if we only look at the American case, right? because it's only one constitution and only few cases. But when we look at the institution of impeachment more broadly, and many countries that have presidential constitutions emulating the US Constitution in different ways. In all of those cases, they have adopted um, some kind of impeachment model. Um, when you look at the events of impeachment ac across countries, this pattern is very consistent. So today we'd like to make essentially two, two points to, to get a, a better sense of how the institution of impeachment works when we look at it in comparative perspective from, from a perspective of, of comparative um, constitutional law. The first one is that um, if we compare the mechanism of impeachment created by the US Constitution and disseminated to other presidential systems with other constitutional mechanisms to get rid of bad executives or unpopular executives, um, 
the design of impeachment seems to have an intrinsic, an intrinsic deficit of legitimacy. That is what creates this, this kind of anger and, and among many, many people who pursue the, 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 who experience the moments of impeachment. Um, but also, I think the, the second point I would like to make, and, and I will make this point by comparing imp impeachment to other forms of removal of executives in the world, like the vote of no confidence in, in, in parliamentary systems or recall elections, right? When we compare these institutions to other similar institutions, it's clear that impeachment has a deficit of legitimacy. Um, the second point I would like to make is that, in a way, this is... Uh, it's a problem of the institution, but it's, it's to some extent the, the best we can get because given the nature of the presidential design, the presidential, of presidential constitutions, we need the impeachment process. And the impeachment process is a process that has kind of a legal soul, but has a political body. And in, in moments of crisis, that political body tends to prevail, to prevail over the constitutional soul. And that's, that's the issue of, of partisanship that that was um, mentioned before, that is so strong. So, so just um, to, to give you a, a few comparisons in, in terms of, of broader constitutional patterns. First, let's make the effort of comparing the impeachment institution with other institutions that have been created across the world to get rid of bad executives, right? Um, if you think about the ideal institution to get rid of a bad executive, the ideal institution is a recall election, I would say. Because in the recall election, we have two advantages in terms of legitimacy. The first one is that the same body of voters that elects the president is voting against to get rid of the president or the governor or whoever, exec whoever is the executive in this context. Um, so that's, there, there is a, this element of, of symmetry that is crucial. The same body that elects the, the executive is able to remove the executive, but also in recall elections, we have popular participation driving this mechanism. So there is this dual element of legitimacy, of symmetry, and popular participation that makes recall elections of the perfect mechanism in terms of legitimacy to make sure that if we get rid of the president, this is going to be legitimate. Now, the weird news is that no executive, no national executive, governors have been removed through recollections in the world, but no national executive throughout the world has ever been removed through a recall election. In part because few countries allow recall elections for this purpose. They are relatively new in other countries, but the reality, there are other reasons why this is unlikely to happen. The second possibility is in parliamentary systems, we have votes of no confidence. So the majority of parliament appoints the prime minister and the cabinet. At some point, the majority of parliament decides that the prime minister and the cabinet are no good. So the majority of parliament removes the prime minister and the cabinet, right? Again, this, and this is a normal political process. The prime minister will comply, uh, complain about it. They will, probably he or she will say that this is a coup, but no, no one really cares because this is part of normal politics. Again, the main advantage of this procedure is that the, it's symmetric, the same body that is appointing the cabinet is removing the cabinet. So there is this perfect element of symmetry. There is a disadvantage here though, which is that there is no popular participation because it's elite base, based on parliamentary majorities. So in some systems like, like Germany, for example, um, the constitutional court has established that even if parliament removes the, the cabinet and appoints a new government, there has to be an election following the appointment of the new government 
so that the government will be legitimized by an election. So, so the constitutional point has made this, the, this point very clearly to avoid this, this problem of, of legitimacy. So this is the second mechanism. And the third mechanism, of course, is impeachment, which is the most similar equivalent in presidential systems. And if you think about impeachment, it has none of the advantages of the other institutions, right? It's not symmetric because voters elect the president, but now we are asking Congress to remove the president. And it involves no popular participation because Congress is supposed to do this in, in between um, elections. So impeachment is, of all possible designs, is probably the less legitimate mechanism to get rid of a bad president. Now, in presidential constitutions, this is as good as it gets, right? Because what is distinctive of presidential constitutions is that both the president and members of Congress have fixed terms in office. They are elected for two years or four years or five years or six years, depending on the country, right? Those terms will vary. But the expectation is that members of Congress are elected for a certain period, presidents are elected for a certain period, and they will not be removed from office until, unless something very extraordinary happens. So impeachment, and, and this is the, the second point I want to emphasize, impeachment combines this weird mix of political logic, right, the partisan logic that we were discussing before, in which majorities in Congress have to decide whether this is an impeachable offense and whether they are going to get rid of the president, with this constitutional quasi-legal logic that involves that some kind of crime needs to be involved, right? Which is, it's, it's not very clearly defined, and, and this is on purpose, because there has to be some flexibility to identify gross violations of public trust by the president. What I want to emphasize is that in every model of impeachment, we may think, well, maybe if we tweak the Constitution, this will be solvable. But every model of impeachment that we know of has this problem, right? They, essentially, there is the American model in which the House initiates the accusation and the Senate decides. Um, there is a second model in unicameral legislatures in which part of the legislature, kind of some, some committee or some group in the legislature initiates the accusation and the legislature as a whole decides. Um, and then there is the, the what we may call the judicial model of impeachment in which Congress initiates the accusation and authorizes a trial that is performed by the Supreme Court, usually. This is the model in South Korea. It used to be the model in Venezuela. Um, and then there is a, a derivative of this, uh, which is in the, U, in the US would be solved through the 25th Amendment, but in many countries, Congress is able to declare the president incapacitated, either mentally incapacitated or physically incapacitated or sometimes morally incapacitated to rule. So that's a kind of a distant casting of impeachment that works in a similar way. What I want to emphasize is that in all of those models, Congress ends up being the gatekeeper for, for the impeachment process. Even if the trial takes place in the Supreme Court to give it more like legal framework, partisan majorities in Congress will say, and sometimes super majorities will say, whether this is feasible or not. And so this is the, the mechanism of politicization that is unavoidable in the, in the impeachment process. And therefore, I think the, the fundamental issue that we, we need to keep in mind is that the very design of the institution 
involves these two elements in permanent tension, right? The legal element that seems to represent a trial, that mimics a trial, and then the political element that is intrinsic to the, the nature of the legislative process. Um, there are very few historical cases in which I think most people are happy with an impeachment, which in the US, I, I guess the, the closest case would be the Nixon event, the Nixon process. Um, and those are situations in which there are very broad majorities against the president, and then Congress, even members of the president's party, join that bandwagon against the president, and they remove a very unpopular president from, president from office. Those are the very few circumstances in which people seem to be satisfied with, with impeachment, because two things happen. Um, the broad consensus kind of nurtures that political body, and then the due process creates legitimacy for the legal aspect of the, of the process. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, it was re remarkable. Everyone stayed within their time. That's <laughs> unheard of for faculty. Um, let's open it up uh, for, for questions, or maybe I should start. Uh, anyone want to add anything to or comment on what was said by another panelist? I'm glad we all seem to agree. That seems that's good that we're all yeah. seemingly in agreement. Yeah, and maybe it's good. I don't know. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, we disagree on something else. Yes. Let's um, let's open it up, uh, Mar. And we're gonna we're live streaming, so make sure you wait for the microphone. And Mar, I want you to stand up and introduce yourself as well. Hi, thank you for coming to speak with us. I'm Mara Bradley. I'm a senior here at the university and a Tocqueville fellow. Um, my question for you all tonight is, if Trump is elected in 2020, what impact will that have on the process of impeachment and the American political, political system in general and threatening that legal soul you talked about? What will that have on that impact in general? Um, th thank you for your question um, <laughs> and the phone-in call. Uh, I think if we see that the American people uh, vote Trump back into office, in 2020, then they're essentially ratifying his behavior and saying, we accept that this is the way you're going to act and we uh, support that action. So I, I think that, you know, that's, that should be troubling for us because it, it does seem as if we should see what he has done, if not impeachable, as at least wrong in a way that shouldn't be rewarded with reelection. But that's not up for, for us to decide, right? So it's, it's really a question as to whether or not the American people feel as if things are so bad that only someone who's breaking all of these norms can fix it. And everyone else is just incapable in some kind of way that some of us can't see. I was just going to say, I think this is on. Um, I was just going to say that um, I think that that would really drive home Anibal's point about the strange mixture of political and legal. Um, chances are, if Trump is reelected, he will get himself into other legal problems. And if there is a Democratic majority in the House, um, they may feel compelled to impeach him again. Um, but if there remains a Republican majority in the Senate, which is a, a decently high probability, um, it would be politically pointless and it would probably be politically damaging with the evidence that they did it before and they lost in 2020. Um, 
And so you get into this, you know, it basically just proves Anibal's point that it's a, uh, it's a political mechanism that looks like a legal mechanism, but is really inadequate from a legal standpoint because it's so laden with politics. Hi, uh, my name is Stephen Hours. I'm a senior here uh, at Notre Dame as well. Uh, so there was a lot of criticism from the Republican side uh, against the Democrats for not allowing the Republicans to call witnesses. They wanted to call Hunter and Joe Biden. They also wanted to call the whistleblower. Uh, they rejected it under the pretense of them making it a show. My question is, did they were there any witnesses, uh, including the Bidens or the whistleblower, that would have been a strengthened the Republican case against impeachment or any other witnesses? that could have strengthened their case? And was that a mistake by the, by the Democrats to not allow them to have witnesses? Sorry, do you mean strengthened the Democratic case or Republican case? The Republican case. Okay. Want to take it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a really good question, Stephen. I'm not sure I know the answer. Um, I suspect in the case of the whistleblower, the answer is no, because the whistleblower would simply have said whatever she or he said in the first place, which is what led to the impeachment proceedings and what many others corroborated. The case of the Bidens, that becomes very much a political show. It's only adjacent to the matter at hand. It's not necessarily intrinsic to the matter at hand. Um, and so it would then depend on the performance of Hunter and or Joe Biden and the performance of their Republican interrogators. Um, I suspect that the reason they wanted the Bidens is because they thought there would be political points to be scored, that things would look weird and strange enough with regard to Hunter Biden's involvement in uh, Ukrainian corporate um, politics that um, it probably would have helped them to some extent at least muddy the waters. But um, whether or not it was worth allowing those witnesses to get Bolton, I'm not sure. Part of me says maybe it was that the risks were less than the rewards for the Democrats. Yeah, I, I would just add that if they had some way of proving, I mentioned a little bit that if they had some way of proving that their questions about Biden and corruption were legitimate, that would then prove that Trump's actions were legitimate in trying to find what the Bidens had done. Proving that, however, would probably involve getting the Ukrainian prosecutor who was fired and proving that he wasn't corrupt and that he was doing something that would have implicated Hunter Biden. I don't, I don't see how you pull that in, and I think that's partially why no one really mentioned that as an option, because I don't see how you, you can do that. Yeah. I, I think that one of the interesting points implicit in, in your question, which is super interesting, is that behind this whole debate about whether witnesses or not witnesses, or how, who should select the witnesses, right? The, I think there is an, a very important issue implicit, which is that it's it's really hard, hard to know what due process means in an impeachment process. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at this internationally, this is 
even more striking, right? In, we have cases in, like in Paraguay in 2012 in which an impeachment process took 48 hours. In 48 hours, Congress decided to remove the president from office, right? So that's the extreme of certainly not due process. Then you have countries in which the, the process is highly, highly um, legalized, and, but, but it's clear that even in the US, which is a very strong, um, it has a very strong Congress, the, the procedures for impeachment vary quite a bit, especially when it comes to witnesses and the nature of the evidence that is admissible and what evidence should mean, varies a lot from historical case to historical case. Um, so, so this is one of the most striking issues, that there is no clear standard about what evidence should be accepted and who should be able to, to identify evidence to, for the process. Can I have a follow-up question on just on how this has affected uh, Joe Biden? Do we know exactly how this has affected Joe Biden? I mean, he's not doing particularly well, but that could be for any number of reasons. Can we uh, uh, mark what in the impeachment process has done to Biden? Not that I know of. I don't think there were any entrance poll questions on that in Iowa. Um, you know. Philip and I had a debate, a, a mini debate about this right before we started. Um, I would argue that Biden killed himself as opposed, <laughs> to, uh, as opposed to impeachment killing him. Um, I, I think circumstantially we can say that um, the beginning of his downward uh, momentum kind of starts with uh, you know, some point in the impeachment process, maybe when it moves over to the Senate. Um, I, I think it may have had a personal impact on him. You know, it may have worn him out. It may have depressed him. It may have made him more tired. It may have distracted him. Um, but so it, I, I think it's very difficult to tell when you have a floundering campaign um, that is probably propped up by name recognition and it starts going downhill um, at the same time that this other thing happens. But I, as far as I know, there have not been questions about that that were lined up with who do you support as the Democratic nominee. I mean, Joni Ernst in Iowa said it was going to hurt him, but I suspect that Democratic caucus goers in Iowa are not really taking cues from Joni Ernst. So, uh, yeah. I, would, I would disagree a little bit with that because I think as soon as Trump brought him into the corrupt camp of saying like maybe he did something corrupt and maybe there's some shady business there, then Joe Biden, who up to that point looks squeaky clean compared to a lot of people who've spent their life in politics, right? He doesn't have tons of money. He doesn't have a clear objective that he's been going, gunning towards. He doesn't make a ton of money as a, you know, a lobbyist in any way. He's never really made that much money. So if you think about all he sacrificed that he, to be part of politics and how little he has been financially rewarded for that, you could say that by associating him with some sort of corruption and some sort of shady deals in a faraway land, then he's just like Trump, right? He's just like everyone else. And so the, the squeaky clean reputation that he had that might have been helping him would be harmed. And I think also on a personal note, considering how many children he has had who he's lost, to have another child dragged through the mud, I think I'm sure mm. would drag you down. Quickly. So I'm going to change my mind. Uh, <laughs> it, I, I, think, I think 
what Professor Burns said is, is well taken, especially if you think about this Democratic race as having these lanes that the media likes to talk about. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that the stain of corruption necessarily has, um, has infected Joe Biden, at least in the Democratic primary electorate. But I do think what it may have done is just made people tired uh, and made them kind of wary of, well, if Biden is elected, the Republicans are going to try to impeach him. Um, and, and what that and the person who that helps is somebody who's totally outside Washington politics and is a newcomer and is named Pete Buttigieg uh, and is fighting within that same centrist lane that Biden is occupying. So I think um, whether or not it directly hurt Biden, I think it may have helped Mayor Pete just by uh, him being a fresh face and this being sort of an exhausting thing that Biden's name is is sort of infiltrated down again. Implicated yeah. in. And, and presumably this uh, that's very interesting about, about how it could help Mayor Pete. And presumably that if Biden, one of the, the main um, forces behind his uh, elect his campaign is he's electable, he's known, but all of a sudden he's known in a bad way or possibly a bad way. And, you know, yeah. yeah, that's very okay. Uh, sure, Zach. Uh, hello, my name is Zach Lapar. I'm a sophomore Tocqueville fellow. Um, my question is about the obstruction of Congress impeachment article. Um, so, in the Constitution, the like framework laid out for impeachment is for under treason, bribery or high crimes and other misdemeanors. Um, And my understanding of why the Democrats elected to go with obstruction of Congress is that they were investigating the president for high crimes and misdemeanors, and he was, by not complying with their subpoenas, obstructing Congress. Um, And it is also my understanding that there would be other ways to deal with him not complying with subpoenas other than impeachment, as well as that to some extent he can assert executive privilege. Um, so I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to the constitutionality of the obstruction of Congress article. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a uh, ooh, I, sorry, <laughs> speaking more loosely than I like to on a live stream. Uh, th- the nice thing about obstruction of Congress is that it's not as provable as obstruction of justice. On top of that, there should be a judicial process showing that you've obstructed Congress. Because Trump used such a broad and arguably far too broad understanding of executive privilege, then the Democrats had a case. The problem is if they had brought it to the, to the courts, as Adam Schiff said when they were talking about um, the articles, if they had brought it to the courts, they would have lost by winning because it would have taken too long. And so by the time they got a ruling that he had to comply with their, with their subpoenas, the, the election would have been on, on the heels of that, right? So you wouldn't have been able to make a case for having impeachment. So this is, again, speaking to Annabelle's point that it's sort of political, sort of legal. And so obstruction of Congress is like the very essence of the kind of political, kind of legal aspect of, of impeachment. Yeah. Uh, Jake, oh. Hi, I'm uh, Jake Radier. I'm a senior uh, here at Notre Dame and a Tocqueville fellow. What I'm interested in is what you think this process means for the future of the Republican Party, because 
On the House side, you could see that the president secured um, 100% support from Republicans, which shows that he's purged the House of all of his opponents that he began with in 2016. But then on the Senate side, as you said, Professor Burns, um, this is the first time that a, a senator has voted to convict a president of their own party. So how do you, how do you look at this as as Mitt Romney, who is the former standard bearer and is pretty safe in his state, leading an ever Trump movement, or the president has purged his opponents in the House? So what's more important, the, the zero in the House or the one in the Senate? I mean, for me personally, the one in the Senate. Um, Sorry, for me personally. Oh, sorry, um, I think it's Trump has very successfully created a party that is in his corner, and anyone who op opposes him is uh, not welcome anymore. And I don't think that you're going to get away from that. So I think it's much more important that he got complete um, a unanimous support from the Republicans in the House. And I think that the only reason you have the defection that you did is because Mitt Romney genu genuinely did um, go with his conscience and thought that Trump had committed high crimes and misdemeanors. How often people can have that kind of iron stomach and deal with the kind of um, pushback that Romney can get, we're not going to see a lot of that, I don't think. But yeah, if you guys have... Any thought on the future of the Republican Party and what, it, what this means for it? <laughs> Well, I could, I could speak for days on that. Um, that's a great question, Jake. Um, you know, I think it's remarkable to think about how quickly Donald Trump has been able to transform the Republican Party from a party, from a, a Reagan party, in which he was an outlier and tolerated, but really still seemingly belonged to people like Paul Ryan, my colleague. Paul Ryan now, uh, who's not there anymore because he's here. Um, he's not, well, he's here because he's not there. Um, uh, and, you, you know, Mitt Romney and people of that ilk and Lindsey Graham um, into being a, a Trumpist party where there is almost universal support for both Trump and his, and his policies like trade protectionism. Um, but I think the answer to that question depends entirely on the outcome of the 2020 election. As all of these things with political parties always do, parties react whole cloth to election outcomes. So we know in 2012, we all know about the famous uh, post-mortem document by the RNC that said we need to be a much more open party, a more racially and ethnically diverse party that brings in young people and Latino voters. And they went the opposite direction because that's who happened to win the nomination. If Trump ends up losing and losing substantially, there will be a lot of voices saying we got to go back to Reaganism. And then people like Paul Ryan and perhaps Mitt Romney uh, and other kind of traditional conservatives and perhaps Christian conservatives um, are going to seem much more attractive. Trump wins. Trumpism is the future, at least until it loses. One, one point about the question that I think is worth considering is that um, the, the question, I think, connects very well the two presentations um, it, uh, in the sense that the, what parties do in situations of potential impeachment, the, the president's party does, 
is very much related to the behavior of public opinion. So we, we tend to think about, well, what's the size of each party in Congress and do they control two-thirds or not, right, that kind of thing. But in fact, the crucial mechanism usually is whether the president's party fractures. And where the president's party fractures depends on the level of approval of the president among the core constituencies, right? And so in this case, clearly the, the, the data shows that um, Republicans have been remain Republican voters have remained very loyal to the president. So there are very little, very few incentives for the party to divide. Now, in terms of the future of the party, one can think that in any situation in which um, the public opinion divides with respect to the to to the to with respect to a president, then the party will have incentives to to divide. Can I ask a follow up, uh, the, uh, Professor Lehman? I think your slide was that. Was it 9% of Republicans were for impeachment or for removal, but, but it stayed flat. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Why? I mean, it's sort of shocking in a way um, that it didn't move at all. Um, do we have a good reason or other than they're just loyal to the president? Uh, there, there's the graph. Um, None of the lines moved, yeah. and and to me that's particularly remarkable. Um, I think there was some thought in October that the Republican line might move a bit, um, that this was what, what Trump was being accused of was egregious enough that that some of those Republicans who kind of had held their nose and voted for Trump just because he was the Republican nominee would move. Uh, that never happened. Um, and I think it just speaks to the polarization of our society and of our, our media and the way we get our information. Um, it, you know, people just live in different information universes. Um, and the, the, the picture that he, the frame that each side wanted to put on it was successful. The Democrats' frame was obviously lawless president. The Republicans' frame was trying to overturn an election. And I think that stuck. What is particularly remarkable to me is that independents never moved. They stayed exactly the same. And that I think that tells us something about the nature of political independence, that political independence, by and large, are people who don't care about politics, don't like it, and don't pay attention. But I think especially in a polarized age where the different, not only the different messages of the parties, but the different portrayals of reality by different cable news networks suggest to independents that I can't believe either mm -hmm. side, and this is all really tiresome and really painful, so I'm just going to tune it out. Um, but it is remarkable that, um, that there's no movement. I guess one other thing one might say about Republicans and about the lack of movement in general is that everything that we know today about the Ukraine situation, we kind of knew from the transcript that Trump released and that Giuliani told everybody about. Um, and so the more we have a lot more information about who was there and exactly when things happened. But the basic story, unlike Watergate, mm -hmm. the basic story has always been the same. And so maybe that's part of the reason for the lack of movement. Do we have uh, different data, or, or can we uh, separate the data for those who 
really paid attention versus those who did not? Um, oh, I'm sure we can and and we will. Um, I don't have those data right now, but I'm I'm sure those data will become available. Um, these I mean, we have the data, um, just you know, our, our researchers able to get a hold of them. And so I'm, far I'm just wondering if one of the reasons that they didn't move is people just weren't, never got really that interested and weren't paying attention. Well, and I think we're getting increasing, not only the research on um, the media in this uh, cable slash internet age is that people not only self-select into their favorite partisan media, but they also self-select into politics or entertainment or sports. There's such an array of choices that the only people really following this in today's world are political junkies. Yeah. And they're going into their partisan echo chambers. Everybody else is watching ESPN or Home and Garden or The Bachelor or something that's more pleasant than impeachment. Whereas in the 70s, um, my, I wasn't old enough to experience this, but my understanding is the Watergate hearings were just ubiquitous. They were on all the time on any uh, television network that one had access to. So there's a self-selection out of paying attention to politics now. Yeah. Please, ma'am. Hi, um, I'm Susan Page. I'm a visiting professor um, here at the Keough School. Um, I wanted to say first and foremost, thank you very much for doing this. I've been asking for a couple of months why we have not had any sort of a panel on this. And maybe I've just missed it. Maybe it's been in other faculties. So thank you. Um, I'm a lawyer by background. And so sorry in advance. But I'm curious in terms of the constitutionality issue, you're approaching it from a political science perspective, which I think is, is really helpful. Um, but what do you all think about, okay, so I had, for instance, a professor who uh, was on the case for um, President Trump who changed his mind about whether or not you needed an underlying crime. I'm just curious from your perspective, we already know it's obviously highly um, uh, partisan, et cetera, et cetera, a very political process kind of covering up for the law. But what do you think about the actual crimes? And maybe this goes back to Zach's question as well, sort of high crimes and misdemeanors and whether whether or not there's an underlying crime. Thanks. Well, I think that the founders were certainly very clear when they were creating the document that they were trying to make a, a loophole that wasn't statutory. So it wasn't a statutory crime, and they were very clear that they wanted a mechanism for removing a president who had done something, and then they didn't want to then list everything that you could possibly do, but they wanted to create a tier, right? So we understand that bribery is really bad. We understand that treason is really bad. So what rises to the level of that same level, or sorry, of, of those two things? And then we do get into the, the problem of saying that's a subjective measure. It's very hard to quantify that. It's very hard to say what besides treason is so bad that you can't then pinpoint it and say this is exactly the same thing, right? Because bribery and treason, we understand those. So what's, what's, this, what's in this box right here? So that's the problem here is that you do want a political mechanism for the elites to be able to say to the president, you've done something wrong, we want you out. 
and we aren't going to wait until the next election, especially because the next election could be, you know, three and a half years away. So that was the objective. And so it, it can't very well be defined and it can't be a statutory crime, I think, by design. Sorry. So I understand exactly what you're saying in terms of what the Constitution calls for. It did not define every single possible high crime uh, or misdemeanor because it couldn't. They couldn't. It's not the Constitution that does it. But um, but what do you think of? I mean, I heard uh, Alan Dershowitz interviewed several times when. Rather than saying he was wrong previously, it was, I'm just more correct now. <laughs> uh, what do you think of those sorts of arguments and maybe the fact that none of this data has moved despite all of the evidence that demonstrated something was wrong? Even the Republicans who did not vote for his removal, the few who spoke, Susan Collins, others, this was a problem, but they thought he'd either learned his lesson or it did not rise to the level of removal um, as the remedy. Just, can I uh, just want to, I think I agree with you. I just want to clarify what you said. So uh, in answering the first, the main question, is is a high crime and misdemeanor or is the standard for removal um, a le that a, it, it requires a legal crime to have been committed? And you would say no. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that there's also a realm for, you know, reasonable minds to disagree about what is necessary for these kinds of things. So where I see Alan Dershowitz saying I'm more right now, we come to new opinions and we know from our lives that we're all fallible. And for him to say that was the wrong opinion then and this is the right opinion now does not mean that, you know, when uh, you know, Hillary Clinton runs again <laughs> and she's impeached that he wouldn't then change his mind a third time. So I think that it's, it, it's fair to, for someone to say there has to be some sort of legal crime. I don't think that's the correct interpretation, but I can see why someone would think that was necessary given the fact that treason and bribery are both crimes. Yeah. Annabelle, does the comparative, uh, do other uh, countries' constitutions use the same formula of, as the U.S. Constitution? Sometimes they are broader. They will accept, for example, the, some equivalent of maladministration. Um, sometimes they will, as I mentioned before, they will allow the Congress to remove the president for like lack of moral standing or something. So, so they tend to be broader. And, and I, I, I think, in fact, if, if you go to the debates in the convention, it's mm -hmm. quite clear that they are not thinking about a, a statutory crime, right? The, the, initial, the initial text of, of the draft says um, bribery and treason, and so then the discussion is, right, Charles Mason says, well, bribery and treason, we will never impeach a president because we have defined treason very strictly, so, he, so the term will not be abused. And then he says, well, why don't we use maladministration? And then the, the, the response is, well, if we use maladministration, then Congress will always impeach the president very, very flexibly, right? So they end up with this language, high crime and misdemeanors, that has meaning in the context of the British tradition, but clearly implies that something really bad has happened, but it gives Congress 
flexibility to decide um, in, in a way that, that will, uh, will prevent a major breach of public trust. Would it be, what about um, something that's a violation of his oath of office to preserve and protect the U.S. Constitution? Uh, that's, that could be a crime, but it doesn't have to be a crime. Could we use that as a well, sort that, of proxy? Um, that's, what all, <laughs> that's what all of them. Um, so Cl Clinton and Trump and Nixon were all uh, accused of violating their oath. Mm -hmm. So it was because they were doing something that was against their oath that they had um, done an impeachable offense. So that's almost always intrinsically involved in it. Okay. Yeah. Maybe one or two more? Hi, I'm Blake Ziegler. I'm a freshman, one of the Tocqueville Fellows. Uh, I have a question regarding Republican turnout for the 2020 election. So the Republicans, they just labeled Trump's impeachment as like a political sham. But in 2018, we saw similar rhetoric around the Kavanaugh nomination for the Supreme Court. And Republicans, considering like it all happened right before the 2018 midterms, they were hoping it would cause huge turnout on the Republican side. But we didn't see that happen. So my question is, since we kind of see the same scenario with the impeachment, can we expect the same thing with 2020? Or is there just no real way, real way to tell with the way 2018 turned out? Jeff, this is your... <laughs> uh, that, that's a great question, and bringing up 2018 is, is particularly smart. Um, I think it's really hard to tell with Trump and turnout, because we, political scientists who study this stuff, we all thought that Trump's turnout in 2016 was going to be terrible, because Hillary Clinton had this well-oiled machine with lots of political scientists working for said machine. I mean, that probably was the problem. Um, uh, and, and Trump really had nothing. He was sort of relying on state and local Republican parties to get out the vote, but yet he turned out the vote quite effectively. Um, but then, as you say, not in 2018, trying to play on outrage and the the immigrant caravan that um, he was trying to to um, you know raise concern about. Um, I, I suspect this fires up the base to some extent for some period of time, but it's hard to say who the base is because I don't think we can think of the entire Republican electorate as the base. There's that hardcore of 30 to 35 percent, and those are the same people or the same kinds of people who supported him in 2016 in the primaries. Um, they are probably fired up and uh, pissed off, uh, and he's going to continue to stoke that anger. But there's another portion of the Republican electorate that voted for Trump simply because he was the Republican nominee, and they really didn't like Hillary Clinton that is sort of turned off by Trump and is very concerned about Trump. Um, and I think that's the part that, w that stayed home uh, in 2018. Will that same portion be more likely to stay home or to turn out? It's hard to say. I don't think they're going to turn out just to defend the president. Um, they might turn out to uh, prevent the country from having Bernie Sanders as president if he happens to be the nominee. But if the nominee was, say, uh, Joe Biden or Amy Klobuchar or Pete Buttigieg, 
that portion of the Republican base might say, you know what, I'm just tired. And, and these other people are not going to do irreparable harm. Um, so I think it probably is contingent on what the threat of the alternative is. Yeah. It's, it's also really hard to stay fired up for <laughs> four years. So people were really excited about Trump or really, you know, against Trump or what have you. But to keep that going for a whole four years and then really bring it through for a, a broad swath of people into the election, that that's hard to do. But again, um, you know, political scientists aren't allowed to predict things anymore, right? We got a letter in 2016 just saying, stop, you guys can't do this. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I, just, I, I, would, I would just piggyback on that by saying it's, it's really hard to stay angry, uh, especially when you're the incumbent or, or you're the person you support is the incumbent. A campaign of anger and you've been left behind and you've been, you know, the powers that be don't care about you. That can be very effective when you're the challenger and especially when you're running against sort of somebody from a political dynasty like Hillary Clinton who essentially is running for the third Obama term. Now Trump's been president for four years. Anger, traditionally in campaigns by incumbents, anger doesn't tend to work all that well. You, you may need a more hopeful message to really mobilize your base. I, I think there's some question about whether Trump can create such a message. But. Can I get one final question in? We haven't talked about Nancy Pelosi at all, really. <laughs> Can we explain her um, movement? She seemed re very reluctant, said we're not going to impeach, uh, and then obviously uh, led the impeachment. What, what do we know or think about her movement? Uh, she was waiting for the votes. So she knew that she had the, the left part of her party that really, really wanted to impeach him, and she wanted to make sure that she could get the moderates enough cover. And she's a very sophisticated political actor. So she knows when she's got the vote, she has to move. And she moved quickly as soon as she had them. So I think that the reason that she hesitated as long as she did is that she needed something that was a little bit clearer than violations of the emoluments clause and like what's an emolument and you know these sorts of things are harder to understand whereas asking a foreign leader to do something to investigate your political enemy people can figure that out not well enough to impeach him but they can figure out that that's a bad thing i i don't have too much to add to that except that i um, we know we know there are certain parts of the Democratic base that wanted Trump impeached the day he was inaugurated. Um, and, of course, that wasn't going to happen as long as the Republicans controlled the House. So as soon as the, the Democrats took over uh, early in 2019, Pelosi very smartly didn't want to pursue it because she knew of the potential electoral backlash. Um, I think Sarah is right that she needed the votes. She would have liked to have some Republican votes too, but I think she moves with Ukraine simply because she has to. The left part of her caucus, not just the base out in the electorate, but her caucus in the House had already been clamoring for impeachment, and now there is hard evidence that's staring everyone in the face. I think if she hadn't moved on impeachment, she would have had a revolt within her own caucus. Uh, and the, the problem, as I said in my remarks, of depressing and demobilizing the Democratic base, which has 
um, thought this was an illegitimate president right from the start. Uh, panelists, thank you very much. A wonderful panel, and thank you all for coming. That was great. That was like one of the best we've had.